please remain standing for the reading of the scripture. Our scripture is from 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31a. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, were not the hearing, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think are less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect. Whereas our more respectable members do not need this, but God has so arranged the body, giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there, were may, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. All are apostles, all are prophets, all are teachers. Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? but strive for the greater gifts. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Do we have a, do we have a hymn? No, we don't. Okay. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this opportunity that we have to be here in your presence again today. Lord, we know that you are speaking to us this morning a word of grace and truth. And at this time, we remember that we are your servants. So speak, Lord, for we, your servants, are listening. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I have to admit, I've had more than my fair share of anxiety lately probably why I get up on, you know, when I'm late to worship and say something really stupid about Carolyn. Wait, sorry about that. I just, I just do that sometimes. Uh, okay. 
right. You know, I could blame my anxiety on a lot of things. Uh, my family and I just moved to Heber Springs six months ago. It seems like an eternity now. You know, when we got here, we hardly knew anyone. Then, of course, we came to First United Methodist Church, and we had instantly had 500 new friends. So that was really exciting and not a bit overwhelming at all, not at all. Uh, we didn't know what life in a small town would be like. So y- y'all know that, that Emily and I are city slickers, right? Okay, so like, I grew up in Little Rock, which is a pretty good-sized town. There's like 190,000 people in Little Rock. My wife, Emily, grew up in the greater Cincinnati, Ohio area, where there are several million people running around. And so when the DS called me on the phone, he said, hey, man, I want you to go to this place called Cleburne County, and there are 20,000 people in the whole, in the whole region. Emily and I were a little, a little nervous, you know what I'm saying? Do you, I mean, do you know what I'm saying? Right? And it, and it wasn't just that we had to be in transition again, because we do have some experience with that. You know, since Emily and I were married in 2007, we've relocated from one community to another three separate times. The first was in 2012 when we finished our graduate studies at Asbury Theological Seminary and moved from Wilmore, Kentucky to Bentonville, Arkansas, where I took my first church appointment. And then three years later, we moved from Bentonville, um, where I served as a solo pastor in Russellville for three years, and that was until 2015. And then, and then in 2018, I got to move to God's chosen place for ministry, Heber Springs, Arkansas. Amen? <laughs> and that was this past year. You know, getting settled in a new place takes time. And even though we have quite a bit of experience with it, we still kind of struggle with it. I mean, sometimes, folks, sometimes it just gets really lonely because we think about the folks that we've left behind in the communities we've been before. But mostly, the way I would describe what we experience in times of transition like this is the word vulnerability. And that vulnerability comes from being in a new place without the relationships and the support that we had before. You know, it's tough finding your way around a new town, even one that only has like four or five stoplights. (laughs) Not knowing who to trust or from where much-needed help will come. You know, it seems like every time we move... The first thing Emily and I discuss, of course, this is after the dust has settled from all the cardboard boxes. One of us looks at the other and says, and says geez, babe, we were just starting to build a solid list of re- reliable babysitters. Now we've got to start all over again. And, and folks, I've got to tell you, every time we do that work, we start over again and we find more babysitters because... I deeply love my precious children. It's just that sometimes I need to love them from a safe distance. (laughs) I also know that despite all the anxiety I feel during times of transition, that God nonetheless has been faithful to me. Not only does God put people in my path that help me and my family in times like these, God also uses these moments of discomfort. And by the way, there are, there are plenty of them when you're in transition, those, dis, those uncomfortable moments. 
And what I've come to learn is that God is using those moments to teach me a rather important truth for my life. And this is the truth, that I am a needy person. I mean, I can't do it all on my own. Heck, sometimes I don't even feel like I can do some of it on my own, right? Amen? When my family, and especially this is the case whenever we move into a new community, because we recognize that if it weren't for people who would welcome us and support us, include us in the life of what's going on within the community, that we would never, we would never make it. We need people when we come into a new place to welcome and support us. We need folks who are open to getting our unconnected family connected so that we can begin to make the transition from being outsiders in the community to being fully participating members of that community, right? That only happens if the people who are in that community welcome us. We need that. And the truth is, there are some communities where newcomers aren't really all that welcome. In those communities, it's truly because of the unwillingness of the people who are already there to welcome the newcomer and the outsider into their midst, it truly becomes impossible for a person to feel like they are a fully participating member of that community. But I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail today because that is a whole other sermon, right? Dealing with communities where we are not open to others. But when I think about my need, my need for other people, my neediness, that sense that I can't do it all on my own, I realize how sometimes... I think that while I do maybe perhaps begrudgingly rely on other people for help, that there's still this thought in the back of my mind and this dread in my heart that I shouldn't have to rely on other people, right? I should be self-reliant. I should be able to take care of my own business because Strong, hardworking people don't let others carry their burdens. They handle it. They get it done. It's like we say in the Disciple Bible Study course, when we talk about humankind's fractured relationship with God, and we say, quote, we're fine, we're fine, we'll let you know when we need you. And that's the attitude that we carry around with us each and every day. It's also true that our culture tends to idolize these monolithic, larger-than-life leaders of industry and technology who appear to have, I don't know, they appear, how do we say, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Now, I don't own any boots. Who owns boots, right? How do you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps? I mean, doesn't gravity kind of keep you down on the floor? You know what I'm saying? Like, somebody tell me, somebody explain that to me, how I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. All right, so I guess that's not really a thing. But these people, they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and they drive growth in technology or design or creative expression in the culture. Did you know that we even tend to, and maybe idolize is a strong word, but we sort of do, we sort of idolize some people who are ministry leaders, leaders in the church, who appear to have done the same thing for the church that some of these great leaders like the Steve Jobs of the world have done for industry or computers. And 
in, 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 in some total, surely we think to ourselves that self-sufficiency, that independent thinking, and tireless productivity have become hallmarks of greatness in our culture. And this is what we think of ourselves. That we probably should rely on people, but we ought not to, right? It's that tug, that feeling that we get. There's another thing I think about when I think about our need for other people. These are the folks who have failed in life for whatever reason, whether it's uh, the lack of education or access or addiction or whatever the reason, to, to not have the same things that us hardworking, successful people have. These are the folks in our communities who come into our churches and our government agencies seeking financial and social services. When we think of the word needy, I feel like this is what we think about. We think about these, these people that are out of luck, out of hope, out of resources, coming and begging for help. And many of them come through the church as well. You know, there was a gentleman who came by our church office this week, and he's really struggling. In fact, one night he slept outside in the cold in Heber Springs. Within the last week of today, he was on the street, homeless. And he came into the office, his, his counselor was with him, who was providing him counseling services free of charge, because he couldn't pay, right? And he came, and they were just looking for somewhere where we could put him up to where he wouldn't have to be on the street until his next Social Security disability check came. And by the grace of God and the financial provision of this church, we were able to help him in partnership with this counselor and with other local services, and now he's not sleeping behind the old drugstore anymore. He is just one of many people who come through the church office here every week seeking assistance. Right? Our office assistant, Mike Wagner, one of his primary jobs at our church is to, is to work with folks, connecting with them in conversation, listening to them and discovering what their true needs are, and then provides help, help that we are able to give because you as a church have decided that it's a priority to you that we would help people with emergency financial needs in our community. And by the way, Mike does a great job of that, working with the folks that come through. I see it every day. Um, his passion and his, his concern for the folks that come through our church looking for help is, well, it's amazing. Um, it's a model for all of us to follow. So I think about my own sense of guilt, about my own need for other people. And then I think about the other people who are so desperate and so needy that they come looking for help wherever they can find it. And I think I've realized something in the midst of all that. It doesn't really matter if you live in a 500 square foot trailer or a 5,000 square foot house by the lake. Friends, we're all needy. We are all needy, and I'm afraid to say that we Christians who live out our faith in the mainline church may be the most needy of all. Let me explain why I think this. When I was going through one of my big transitions from seminary in Kentucky to ministry in Bentonville, Arkansas, I had my opportunity to attend the first, my, the first time um, that I ever attended the Arkansas Annual Conference meeting of the Methodist Church. It's like our big meeting that we have every year. This year it's in May. It's normally in June in Hot Springs, right? How many of you have ever been to the Annual Conference meeting, by the way? 
Wow, there's a good number in this group. Uh, the other two services, uh, they ha- hardly had any, any idea what I was talking about. Um, but some of you know, right? This is, this is our big business meeting every year. And uh, going to it the first time, because it's about three and a half days of sun up to sundown, solid business, right, Charlie? Right, I mean, it's, they keep you busy, and there's a lot of different issues and items that they address in their business. And it can be really overwhelming the first time. Um, but also really exciting. So for those of you who have attended one of our annual conferences, you, you know that the way we carry out our business is fairly predictable. Uh, we do about the same things in about the same order every year. I mean, this is what you would expect because after all, we are part of a, a Christian movement that has the word method built into its name, right? Oh, I'll give you all credit. Y'all laughed a little bit more than the other two groups did. But the first time you go, it can be pretty overwhelming. Now, one of the things that I remember from that first session of annual conference I ever attended was that as I sat in each of the business uh, sessions, one of the big conversations that we were having was about one of the juiciest, most interesting topics ever to come before the business session of a Methodist conference. You ready for it? Clergy health and pension benefits. Oh, that, no, that wasn't as interesting to y'all as it was to me. I guess not. Well, well, we were, these things are the two biggest line items in the Arkansas Conference's budget. Apparently, we preachers are kind of expensive, and we tend not to be very healthy towards the end of our lives, so it's really expensive when we get old, right? I mean, this is, I'm, I'm just being straight with you. Like, the, the risk pool for insurance, for health insurance for a clergy person is way riskier than most other professions. Did you know this? right? So our health insurance and our pension and all that stuff was getting so bloated and so expensive that we couldn't handle it anymore. And at the same time, churches were starting to pay less and less of their apportionments, okay? So I just lost a bunch of you, right? How many of you know what apportionments are? Right? Okay, this is a really educated group, Carolyn. Oh my gosh, they know. So apportionments are the money that we pay out of our offerings that go to the annual conference, and then some of that goes on from the annual conference to the denominational level that where resources are shared throughout ministries that happen all over the world, not just here in the United States, right? And so people weren't able to pay enough, and so costs were rising, and income was declining, and they were trying to figure out how to solve this, right? And so they had to change the apportionment formula. All right, now y'all stay with me, okay? I was confused at this point, still trying to figure out why this was so important, what was going on, what is this apportionment formula thing? Apparently, you have to take college calculus to understand how it works, right? And it was ineffective. So I began to do what a normal person would do, is I kind of went around to the clergy and some of the other people that I did know at that point, which was very few, and I started to ask them, what in the world is going on here? Why, what is the big deal with this apportionment formula? Why did it need to be replaced? And finally, after hearing several theories, none of which made any sense to me, a wise old preacher finally explained to me what the problem was. He said, one of the reasons why the apportionment formula had to be changed is because it was based primarily on the number of members 
that church reported to the conference. But the churches had far fewer people who actually gave a biblical tithe than the number of people who were on their roles as members. Can you believe that? And that's the reason why our math didn't add up. Because we were counting members and not disciples. You see, membership no longer has the same meaning that it did before, my friends. Did you know, do any of you know what membership was like in the early Methodist movement? Do you want to know? Actually, I don't care whether you want to know. I'm going to tell you anyway. In the early days of our movement, all of the members of the Methodists were involved in small groups for accountability and discipleship. They had to be in a small group. That was not optional. In fact, every member of a small group called a class meeting is what they called them. They were issued a class meeting ticket. And that ticket had to be like punched or marked or whatever for every meeting in that particular term, whether it was like a quarter or six months. I don't know how long the terms were, but you had to go to every single meeting. And if you missed too many meetings, guess what they would do? They would take away your membership in that small group in the next session, whether it be the next quarter or the next six months, right? So do you hear what I'm saying? In the early Methodist church, if you didn't show up to every meeting, they kicked you out. So just for kicks and giggles, what if I told you that in my back pocket... I had a stack of cards with each and every one of your names on it. And I was going to pass those out and you had to be here every single Sunday or you're going to get kicked out of the church. How many of you would just up and quit right now? (laughs) Oh, good. Nobody raised their hands. So, um, Barbara, would you help me pass those out? <laughs> Never mind, I don't have them. <laughs> y'all, y'all called my bluff. I appreciate it. All right. Yeah. And just in case you think that's ridiculous, the reason why they had to attend the meeting was for three reasons. They were required to attend first because at the meeting, each member was asked to, to give an account of where they saw God at work in their lives in the past week and what they were doing to grow spiritually, intentionally in their discipleship. That was the first thing that they had to share at the meeting. The second thing they had to do at the meeting was they had to to give a donation to support the poor and the needy in the community, right? Every single person who was a member had to either go and give alms to somebody who was poor, right? That that old word of, of sharing and giving to people in need, or they had to give some money to their class meeting leader so that he could go and share it with somebody, he or she could go and share it with somebody who was in need. That was the second thing. Grow spiritually, share with others. And then third, they had to give an account of their visitation ministry for the previous week. They were all accountable to visit the sick and those who were in prison every single week. It was their responsibility to do that. And their meeting was a time when they would give an account for what they, who they had gone to see that week. Now, I don't think any of us would live up to that standard, would we? That's the reason why their membership was so important. Now, I'm afraid, friends, that in becoming, quote, members 
in the modern sense of the Methodist church, many of us have missed how much we need God and others in the church to become who we were created to be and to help the church become what God created it to be, right? That is our need. The Apostle Paul was laser-focused on something he saw as essential in the life of the church. And this is what he saw was so important, was that we would experience a unity together based not on an experience that we've all had together, but based on our common love for God and our love for our neighbor. In the passage that Barbara read for us this morning, Paul writes to the Corinthian Christians a powerful message about the unity they shared due to their common experience of baptism by water and the Holy Spirit. And in Paul's words, he was simply echoing what he had wrote to the, to the Christians at Galatia many years before. This is what he said, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek, There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. You see, in Corinthians, Paul used the illustration of the human body to describe this unity of being in Christ. He said that the church is the body of Christ, that while we are all individuals, we together are a unit. Paul wants the church to know that unity and diversity, right? The idea that we can all have a personal saving relationship with Jesus Christ, but also depend on one another for their own gifts and graces and abilities in the life of the church. Those two things are not incompatible. In fact, those two things together are necessary for the church to flourish, to fulfill God's purposes for it. Then, then... Paul addresses some of the issues the Corinthians were facing. Clearly, they felt like some parts of the body were more important than others. And of course, they struggle with other things too that Paul tried to address. You know, I can can think of some of the examples of things that Corinthian Christians would struggle with. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's no way that we would ever struggle with anything like this here. You know, for example... Maybe there's somebody who gives a lot to the church, right? Maybe they think that because they give a lot, they're more important than somebody else. That would never happen here, would it? That would only happen in Corinth, right? Or maybe somebody would say, you know what? I don't like what the preacher is doing, or I don't like what this person over here is doing, or I don't like how this thing was handled, so I'm going to stop supporting the church with my gifts and my presence, that, that happened in Corinth. There's no way that happens here, right? Right? We're all in unity here. We're one body all together, right? We wouldn't uh, attack or backbite or gossip about another person in our church because to do that would to be bring, to bring harm to our own self, amen? Right? Because the person to your left and the person to your right, they're part of you, right? And you would never say a negative thing about a person who, who about a part of you, Right? Right? You would never bring harm to, someone, to, to something that would just reflect that harm back onto yourself, would you? Okay, good. So we're all on the same page here, that this is just something that happened a long time ago that Paul had to address, and we don't have to worry about it anymore because we are going to live in unity together. Amen? Right? Okay. All right. Very good. 
I guess since we've got that settled, we can move on. Paul writes, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, right? Nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and those members of the body that we think are less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. You know, it's really simple if you think about it. You know, Pastor Tommy talks about the, says this um, from time to time, and, I'm, and I hope you've heard it, um, but it bears repeating. He said that, and he's got this from somewhere else, I can't remember, but the church is only as effective as its weakest member. Have you guys ever heard that before? The church is only effective as its weakest member. Right? You could argue that maybe our weakest member is somebody who is uh, down at the nursing home, stuck in a bed and can't go anywhere. But I have a different idea. You know who I think our weakest member is? I think our weakest member is the person who comes here on a Sunday morning and sits in the pew and listens to a sermon and sings some songs. And then they go out and they live their life as if it didn't matter. That God had no claim on their life. That nothing that we do in here affects anything that we do out there. You know why? Because when I look at somebody who's laid up in the bed and I visit with them, they tell me stories about their life and their faith. right? And they, and they pray for us and they pray for our church. How much more of a ministry is that than those of us who do nothing? Paul is clear in his teaching. Christian unity is more than having a common status, like a membership. See, true Christian unity comes when each of us, from the greatest of us all the way down to the least, recognizes that we each have a part to play in building God's kingdom here in this place. And it is only, it is only when each part works together that the body can do what God created it to do. In other words, God created us to need one another. Sometimes we enjoy the benefits of, I don't know, what we would call strength in numbers, right? Paul writes about the, you know, Paul isn't writing about strength in numbers. You guys know what this is, what I mean by this, right? Is that you know, it, there are several hundred people in the life of this church. And so because some of our people, like Pam Evans, our woman of the year, right? Some of our people contribute fully to the life of the church. And because some people contribute, then we get to enjoy this building and all the ministries that we do and all the outreach that happens in this church because some of us do it, right? That's called strength in numbers, right? It's a, it's a, it's a battle of attrition. It's like saying, well... Only 20% of the people who come to church are actually going to do anything. Well, let's be excited that 20% of the people in the church are actually going to do something. When we give up on the claim that every single one of us is called to ministry. And so Paul is not talking about unity in the church like it's a, unit, like it's a strength in numbers. What, what Paul talks about in the church is that we experience in the church, rightly understood and rightly experienced, that the church has a strength in diversity. Right? When all of the members share what they have and what they can do with the whole, that is when the church truly unlocks its potential. You see, because I don't have what you have, and you don't have what I have, and I can't do what you can do, and you can't do what I can do, we need what we can all do together to accomplish the mission. 
But why? Well, Paul makes his appeal in the first chapter of Corinthians. By the way, y'all know I was just kidding, right? That, all that stuff about the Corinthian church, that's to us too, right? Well, this was Paul's prayer for the Corinthian church. And I think it's his prayer for us as well. He said, I pray that all of you would be in agreement and that there would be no division among you. And that is the most important thing. When we allow ourselves to think that one person or another is better or more important or more holy or less sinful than another person in this church, then we all suffer the consequences of the ineffectual nature of who we are. When we fail to encourage everyone to get involved in what we are doing to win, disciple, and serve, we fail to unlock the full potential of those who sit together with us on Sunday morning. And for what it's worth, all of you, whether you're eight days old or 800 years old, right? You all have something that you can do that makes a difference in the life of this church, right? My children, they, uh, they watch this show called Daniel Tiger. You guys ever heard of this? Right? It's a cartoon remake of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Y'all gonna know Mr. Rogers, right? Okay? Mr. Rogers had this song, and Daniel Tiger sings it too. It goes like this. Maybe you can sing it with me. Everyone is big enough big enough to do something. Right? Y'all want to sing it with me? Carolyn says yes. Everyone is big enough, big enough to do something. Right? So, Mr. Rogers got it. Why don't we get it? You and I, we need to take some time to really consider. Do I recognize how needy I really am? and what I have to offer the church? You know, that's a, that's a hard question to answer because it'll force you to let go of some of the assumptions that you've made about yourself, namely your own self-reliance, and some assumptions that you've made about other people, that you don't need them. You are no more or less gifted and called than the person who struggles with addiction and barely makes their rent every month. No less gifted and called than they are. And by the same token, you are no more or less gifted and called than the person who is wildly successful. Think about the greatest Christian leaders you know in our nation. The Francis Chans, the Beth Moores, the Rick Warrens of our world. They aren't any more gifted or called to ministry than anyone in this room. You have the same Holy Spirit at work in you through your baptism, that they have at work in them. So what are you going to do about it, church? What are you going to do about this power that God gives you through the Holy Spirit and this opportunity that you have to serve one another and to be served by one another? How will you recognize your need? Let me ask you all a question. Are you guys ready to acknowledge today that we all need one another. Are you ready? Okay, so here's what I want you to do. And this might take a little bit of gymnastics, but that's okay, that's okay. We can, we can work it out. I want you to look at somebody that's to your left. Okay, go ahead and do that. Look them right in the eye, like right in the eye. Or, uh, you know, pair off, do whatever works, right? 
But look at somebody and say, I need you and you need me. Okay, now look at someone else, same thing. <laughs> In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, may it be so. Amen.